Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the FemiPod for episode 59. I'm here today with Lids of Course, and we are so excited to be introducing our new Femi expert, sport and exercise scientist, Claire Badenhurst. Claire completed her PhD in exercise physiology at the University of Western Australia in 2017, and now works at Massey University as a senior lecturer in exercise and sports science. Her role at Massey University is focused on research, postgraduate student supervision, teaching and serving as major leader of the Bachelor of Science, Exercise and Sports Science. Claire's research to date has focused on health and well-being in athletes with a particular interest in female physiology and the menstrual cycle, iron status and regulation, and low energy availability. With a personal research program focused on women's health, Claire sees the value of not only promoting women's health research, but ensuring equity, and access to information to ensure all individuals can benefit from the resources, support, and information that will enable them to succeed in their health, sport, and career. So not only is Claire clearly a genius, but she has also competed competitively in triathlons, the sprint all the way through to the Iron Woman, for about 12 years, only stepping down recently and focusing on less competitive running and training. We are so lucky to have Claire join our team and grateful to have her on the podcast today. Claire, how are you? What's been going on? I'm actually really good. I'm coming off two long weekends um, here in Auckland, albeit a little bit eventful with a few interesting weather events. But other than that, I'm pretty good for a Tuesday morning, to be honest. (laughs) that's good to hear let's start way back at the beginning and firstly focus on your sport how did you get involved in sport and what Mm. has sport done for you as a person oh wow so I actually growing up I did a lot of dancing and that was pretty much my main passion and then it was in high school that I really started getting into sport um had always been a swimmer because there was a rule in the house with mum that as long as we we're at school, we had to be in the swim team. Um, so general rules that kind of kept me involved and pretty active. And then there came a point in my life where the enjoyment that I was getting from the sports that I was doing, which at the time at school was swimming, a bit of running and rowing actually, superseded the joy that I was getting from dancing. So I kind of started focusing a bit more on that. And then school finished and there was no structured sport for me to do. And I took a gap year, worked in the UK on an exchange program, working with um, as a teacher's aide uh, at a school with visually impaired and autistic kids, which was an incredible experience. Um, And after that was finished, came back to study sports science. And I was really bored at the gym. Um, and apparently it's not good gym etiquette to race people on treadmills, um, (laughs) to always like sit there and you can go slightly quicker than the person walking or running next to you. 
And eventually my mother was like, you need to go and do something with this competitive energy. And she was like, you know how to swim, you know how to run. Like you've done both of those for so long. Like your brother's got a a bike, enter a triathlon. And I was like, oh, okay. And I did one and that started a bit of an addiction, we'll say, that has provided me with so much passion for the research that I do and a lot of hindsight um, into what it was like being an athlete in a culture that both males and females were exposed to that now we're more open about discussing potentially what was not really good for athlete physical or mental health and then just kind of move through it and kind of had times with very interesting coaches, amazing athletes that I trained with, gradually built my way up from sprint to half Ironman distances. Um, And it was only when I moved to New Zealand that I stepped up into the Ironman. There's been some spectacular highs and also some incredible lows, but it's just all been fun. That's sport. So, so true. What was the culture like with triathlon in terms of, I guess, body image and body weight? I know it's really prevalent in running that push to, you know, be leaner, to be faster, which we know is not true, but wonder what it would be mm. like in triathlon with someone with so much experience. Depends on when you were looking at it, I think, and depends also on your coach um, and the people you're working with. I wouldn't say there is... A culture that is there that you have to look a certain way, be a certain body weight because of the fact that you've got so many distances, so many elements to the sport of swimming, cycling, and then running. And the fact that I think as well that you've got your professionals and all of your age groupers racing on the same day and you've got the range of that incredible elite all the way to I just want to finish the absolute culture in terms of like you have to look a certain way to do a triathlon is generally not there. But if you're in that top end, like with any sport, I think as soon as you start getting into that top end competitive echelon, it really depends on the dynamic and the relationships you have with your teammates and your coach as to how that creates a really good culture in and around the discussions of what you look like as an athlete. So I have experiences with coaches who have been brilliant where they have encouraged their female athletes to eat more than their male athletes because, you know what, they've actually done more training than you today. You sat on your ass, you didn't do anything. And, yes, this is healthy for them. And, yes, we want them to eat more. And it doesn't really matter that you don't look like a walking stick figure. Like, we want you to be strong on the bike. Like, you need to have that weight behind you. We need to make sure that you are getting in enough energy for your exercise and training demands and for your recovery afterwards. So I've had some incredible coaches and incredible male coaches in that space that have created a really beautiful environment for the athletes to flourish. And then on the other end of the spectrum... I've also been in cultures where we were weighed and we had skin folds done. And if females were over a certain skin fold, then everyone kind of knew about it. And I see they race better because she had lower skin folds than you did. 
And so it's been an interesting journey because on one end of the spectrum, I was encouraged and trained to a very, very low body weight and had that kind of pressure of uh, have a certain metric of my body composition down to such a low level and compared in and amongst my cohort of fellow athletes that my injury rates and my own mental health was absolutely diabolical. And then on the other end of the spectrum, trained and raced my best but most people don't really look at me and when they ask what the difference is and I'm like 10 kilos 10 kilos is the difference that we've got um yeah I wouldn't say it's just like a culture I think it's really driven by the relationships that you have yeah that's true so true it's who you're around and what your coach believes in and and that's really where the culture comes from so crazy Mm. that you know 10 kgs more you were competing and performing way better because you weren't actually getting injured and you're able to recover so we've all been there we all relate to that yeah Um, what made you decide to get into research and exercise science specifically oh so I finished school and at the time had some pretty good grades and my dad kept telling me I should study medicine And I had no idea what I wanted to study. And like when you get to the end of school and you're trying to figure out what to write down on the university entrance, kind of like this is what I want to get accepted into university for. My careers counselor was always like quite stressed about me because I had no idea. And it was like final year of school and Claire hasn't figured out what she's going to do with her life. And I think we went on like a school trip uh, to Canberra. And one of the visits just happened to be to... AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport. And I remember walking through there, walking through the museum, and I was like, I could do this. This is this is pretty cool. And started my undergrad in sports science and completely just fell in love with everything about it. It was my two favorite elements of schoolwork, human biology and chemistry combined. It was just like this really beautiful space for me to understand and I totally related to it and just loved it and that's been that really it's just kind of led this beautiful journey of just kind of almost like going with intuition and opportunity more so than actually setting that like five-year plan um, but just going with what felt like the right decision for me at that time. Yeah that's awesome and I think where you've landed up as a, you know, a space that is much needed to be filled. And we'll talk more about the lack of research soon. But can we talk a little bit more mm. about your PhD? You did um, your PhD on dietary fact- factors that influence iron status and iron regulation in endurance athletes, which is a topic I'm also very passionate about as an anemic female athlete. Um, how did you choose <laughs> this topic and what did you find out? Well, I guess starting off in that first year of research, my honours year, um, was the first time I'd really started diving into the hormone in our body that regulates iron known as hepcidin. Um, And generally what was found in and around that exercise space that variations in that hormone could actually be a factor that over time affects athletes' iron status because you're getting these peaks which might not provide a very supportive window of opportunity for you to actually absorb iron from the food that you're eating after exercise so in a one-off session not that bad but if you think about athletes we don't just train once and then 
leave it a month. We train twice a day, every single day. And over time, that just accumulates. So if you've got a number of like roadblocks in place, eventually that adds up to be quite a substantial contributor to a reduction in iron status. So I kind of grew from my honours project to look into that um, because one of the things that changes that hormones response around exercise is inflammation in the body. And one of the key ways or one of the key inflammatory markers in your body is really responsive to your carbohydrate levels or your body's carbohydrate levels, your muscle glycogen levels. So instead of looking at the very traditional let's look at iron supplementation, vitamin C. We took a different perspective in my PhD, which was if we can look at how athletes um, manipulate uh, their carbohydrate intake, either before training, after training, or even over seven days, how does that affect our body inflammation, particularly this one marker that is very sensitive to muscle carbohydrate levels and how does that then affect this hormone um, that regulates iron status could we actually improve the situation of both inflammation and iron absorption by manipulating carbohydrate content and generally what we found from that research which has then led on to a lot of further research done by um, Louise Burke, um, a really great sports nutritionist at the AIS and some of her other students like Alana McKay, is the fact that carbohydrate availability within the body and actually making sure that there is good amounts present throughout your training cycles, usually before that exercise, so making sure you've got enough after your exercise for that recovery and everything so that your muscle glycogen levels or your muscle carbohydrate stores are enough, really do influence your body's inflammatory response after exercise, but also that iron regulation hormone. And so if you have very low levels, the likelihood is you're going to push up that inflammation, you're going to push in that roadblock of that hormone that prevents you from absorbing iron. So in this really beautiful way, actually looking at an element in your diet that is not typically thought of um, when you're discussing iron status is actually a very key thing to keep in mind and falls in line with a lot of the nutritional guidelines that we see for athletes and a lot for female athletes and the fact that carbohydrates actually are very important. And it's not just about energy. It's actually about maintaining a cascade of other factors in your body and well-being and function. So interesting. So what you're saying is just eat carbs. And we talked about this last week. We were like, eat carbs all the time. <laughs> we love carbs. Carbs are so important and they've got this terrible reputation. And it's so annoying because it's like super important. And, you know, if it's going to affect iron as well, I mean, that's another benefit from them. So, so cool that you've done that. Amazing area of research and, and very needed for women for sure. We kind of touched on it a little bit before, but like the gender gap in sports research has been in the past largely skewed towards men with only 6% of sports research being conducted exclusively on women between 2014 and 2020. And I think um, 34% mm. was exclusively done on men. So massive gap there. Why do you think women are not included in a lot of research? Uh, money. <laughs> Um, as soon as it comes to the fact that 
you need to do research pretty much like most things. Uh, university is not a money tree, unfortunately. Um, there's very few universities that have got that very large alumni kind of support. You do have a few, I think, some of our well-known universities in around the world, like your Harvard's, your Stanford's, like all of those that have got an incredible, incredible alumni support. Um, but even in that kind of situation, researchers are actually left to find the money to do research themselves and actually finding places that are willing to give that money to do the research. So that is definitely one of, it is definitely a a barrier that people have to be mindful of as that everything that we do within a research study has some form of cost associated with it. And as soon as you start testing in females, you need to respect, especially now that there is a lot more variability in terms of what question you're asking in that research and then what do you need to clarify. So if it is a performance variable, do we actually need to take into consideration that um, there is very distinct um, and different physiological states, different concentration of reproductive hormones that are going to present that could impact that individual's performance. And if that's the case, then I need to make sure that I'm not just estimating what that is, but actually as a scientist quantifying that to actually go, well, here's a blood measure. So I've measured this. So they're definitely in this phase when I did this phase of testing to get these results. Um, And it's not just a simple like, okay, you can come in. I know you're going to be secreting testosterone in a happy amount. Like you can, I can test you now and in a week's time you can come in and go again. With a female, it's, oh, you come in this week. We clarify that. Okay, we'll wait till like the next cycle if we're doing it like only in the follicular phase. But then there's also that chance of if you want to look in the follicular phase and the luteal phase and compare the two, what happens if that female doesn't ovulate and then the luteal phase isn't relatively there like you've got very low progesterone levels then we're like well not like with like I can't really compare it to a female that has ovulated has got high progesterone levels so that means like okay well I guess we're waiting until next cycle but I've used up funds for that kind of blood test so there is that kind of I think back of the mind mindfulness for a lot of researchers that initial barrier which is like this is the budget that I'm allowed people are demanding that I do research with a large sample size so it's valid it represents my population but this is what I'm allowed and if I do it in these other population groups and I try to do that how much of that is going to eat up my funds so there is there is two elements to it I think there's been researchers that have been very much aware of the I guess, the financial and the logistical barriers around it. And then there's also been a section which could almost be described as complete naivety in and around it, which was just like, oh, you can just get them in and just test them, Um, which is often where you get those like mixed cohorts and that it doesn't really matter kind of thing. We can kind of treat them the exact same as men. So you've almost got like two schools of thought um, that are present. Or I guess the third alternative is, Well, there is such variability in females that are um, not on any form of hormonal contraception. We're just going to test the ones on hormonal contraceptives because we can control that. 
So, yeah, you've kind of got different elements there that kind of feed into it. But really it comes down to, I think, logistics and how to manage that in the fact that like most jobs have KPIs and everything like that. So for researchers, how do we address our KPIs? Because I think we've always been told, you know, women um, are a lot harder to study and a lot more complex and take a lot more time. So we've just studied men and then applied what we've found about men to women. Um, But actually understanding that it is a budget thing and it does come down to money, it takes it a whole Mm. other step. And that's where we we should all be standing, you know, on the top of rooftops, yelling out to get money for funding just to, to research so that we all know more about women. Super interesting. What do you think this, like, lack of research, what sort of impact do you think that's having on women in sport and health? That's a, like, that's a beautiful question. I think it constantly, even for myself, shows me the lack of understanding that even I myself have, like it, like I, I sit here and most people are like, oh, you've done so much. And I'm like, oh, listen, at least once every two weeks, I have a panic attack that I don't know. Anything. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know so it's much. okay. We're all in the same boat. Um, but it's, it's funny. I think it's that beautiful thing of like, sometimes the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know which is, um, and it was beautiful, like, I think this morning before the podcast, I actually had a phone call with a collaborator and um, she has been talking to some other athletes that she was consulting with and she's like, why heavy menstrual bleeding occurs? Is there, like, an actual cause for it in terms of variation in hormones? Is it actually linked to our ovulation status? What do we actually know about symptoms and how they change in the cycle with various cycle presentations or characteristics like what are we actually taught as females to understand our bodies because right now what you often tend to see is that most of us know cycle length but in terms of our even understanding on how to rate heavy menstrual blood loss or other symptoms that occur in our body we've got a very trained thought process on like oh that's normal oh I won't talk about that oh I'm not sure but I think this might be heavy I don't actually know and so there's like these all these different elements I think that are still so unknown because you've got cultural knowledge and societal knowledge that has really influenced the individual female's subjective rating on what happens to herself and only now are we starting to crack that open and actually go like yeah you can talk about this with other females like we actually maybe need to look at what is heavy menstrual bleeding like the thing that blows my mind in and around that is the classification for heavy menstrual bleeding is the same for all females and I'm like I'm quite short I didn't realize the uterus was one size fit all. <laughs> like, is it? Like, maybe she's got slightly heavier bleeds because she's like, I don't know, six foot. Like, and that's great. But like, how is it one size fits all? Like, how does this occur? Like, okay, great. 
But then, like, you look back at the research and it's like the last research that I can genuinely find. I've spent weeks sometimes looking for this stuff where they actually measured menstrual fluid loss and then asked females to rate whether it was heavy, normal, or light. It was done in 1964. And I'm like, awesome. Well, like, I've grown up with relatively heavy cycles, but I didn't realize how heavy they were until probably about three or four years ago when I used a menstrual cup and I actually measured Mm. how much blood I lost. And the amount of blood that I lost in two to three hours is standard for the amount of of, a woman loses across her entire period. And that's when Mm. I was like, okay, maybe what I'm experiencing isn't normal. But until that point, you just accept it because you don't know anything else. Mm. Exactly. And it's, it's also very interesting. I've had chats with some researchers where, even even the most recent data that looks at heavy menstrual blood loss in athletic females has been purely based off a questionnaire of which some of the questions are like, yes, there's valid ones in terms of have you experienced blood clots? But then there's other things like, do you uh, change your sanitary items every two hours? And I'm like, well, yeah, I have hygiene practices. Like I go for a run or do you wear double sanitary items? I'm like, yeah, occasionally that's needed if you want to go for a run or like if you're not feeling super confident. And also what type of sanitary items? Super tampon, regular tampon, mini tampon, mini pad, small pad, like just like sheeting there just to keep it clean. Like, I don't know. Like what are we classifying as double sanitary items? Like, man, I could wear triple if you like, I don't know figure that one out you could wear like the tampon the pad and the period undies there we go I've worn three does that classify me as a heavy menstrual bleeder like like it's been done before but that would technically be like have you done that yes okay heavy menstrual bleeder without actually quantifying it so like all our recent research is based off the subjective awareness um which is actually beautiful timing because uh, I think last week I actually got an email from Hello Cup, the menstrual cup organization here in New Zealand, they're actually really willing to support a research study that we've got that would actually look at um, supplying menstrual cups to females for us to actually look at quantifying what that heavy bleed looks like. But with things like, how does it change over a few days? What is your body height and weight? Is there actually variability between females of different body sizes and shapes and things like that? And the beauty of the fact that we've cracked this box open of discussing this topic more is that the concept in and around, I'd like to have a discussion with you about measuring menstrual fluid. You don't have to come into a lab. I literally give you everything. You take it home, do it in a bathroom in privacy kind of thing is a discussion that we can now have. But there's also been a lot of these barriers in and around this is not a topic that is openly discussed. So as long as that barrier was there, actually going to someone even 10 years ago, like, by the way, I'm going to measure your menstrual fluid for two cycles. Most females would be like, no, you're not. That's true. It has changed. Like, it's exciting. More and more people are popping up and, you know, wanting to dive deeper into these topics. And I think it's just so interesting, you know, even with the information that's out there, there's still such a lack of understanding even with what has been studied so like 
for example, Red S and like the knowledge of Red S and what that actually means for women, there's still a lot of like general practitioners and people, even gynecologists. We had a girl reach out to us on Femi and she went to see a gynecologist and she'd lost her period and they said, it's okay, you're, you're lean and active. And so like, that's just an example of like the information being out there, but people still not even knowing about it in those positions. Why do you think so many people mm. still don't know about women's health, even with the information that's out there and in, in positions where they probably should know because women are coming to them for, for you know, help and guidance? Mm. I mean, that's a great question. Like there's so many elements to that that could be influencing it. Like if you realistically look at when there's been a huge uptake and drive in actually going, oh, shoot, we actually potentially haven't done a lot in female athletes. It was maybe, what, like five years ago that we actually started acknowledging that, of which then most of the research has gone, oh, let's quickly do a few meta-analysis on the data that we have got and maybe a few audits to find out what is our representation of females within the literature space. So you're getting a whole generation of meta-analyses, systematic reviews being put out there, which is great. We're combining data to find it, but still you're looking at about 3 to 6% of the population of that research space in both, I guess, sport and the health space that has kind of been focused in and around women. Not to say that there is elements of female health which hasn't been researched. Like There's elements that have been spectacularly well-researched and are incredibly well-known, very well-resourced. And examples of that can be seen in a lot of like breast cancer research and knowledge and awareness. Like That just shows when you kind of get that traction, that good funding, um, you remove a lot of those barriers to knowledge uptake and information and resources like that. But in a lot of other senses, like the ones in sport, because we still have that knowledge gap and now because of the fact that with a lot of those research processes, there is a lot of that whole like, okay, let's quickly quality control what we've done. Right, okay, meta-analysis, okay, audit, 3 to 6% of the population is in this phase, great. All right, we know this. Now we actually kind of need to initiate the other research. So then it again becomes a lot of that whole like, okay, almost like project management, find the funding, set up the project. And then there's a lot more red tape when you're doing research. So I can't just go out and do research. I have to apply to ethics. I sometimes have to get legal requirements reviewed. Like once I've got all that, then I can kind of do the research. So And then only after that do I then disseminate that knowledge. So you've kind of got that lag in terms of we know where it's at and actually getting it out um, and generating that research to inform best practice and good knowledge. But then you've also got to consider that, yes, there are a lot of incredible new age academics and I get to witness that every single day with the students I supervise at PhD and master's level. They school me in terms of actually delivering really good messages through social media and other resources to the general public. And I congratulate them all the time on the way they do that. But when you actually look at the people that are doing the research, that are applying for funding, that are writing it up, I'm probably the youngest academic in my entire school within the university. 
our way of disseminating information is to meet our job KPIs, which is you have to achieve a certain amount of academic publications a year. So we're always going to strive for that because that's what we're assessed on for our job criteria. Once you've got that point, technically in most academics' minds, you've ticked the box and you move on. Most people don't go and read an abstract for fun. I know I do. Most people don't. So, yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like our actual ability to translate that knowledge. Um, And the only other real social media resource that does get shared is Twitter, of which most people will share the link to their journal article. So there's a major gap in terms of where the academics actually translate their research to best practice to actually allow for some of those medical practitioners and resources um, or professionals to get access to it because there is a gap there. So in a sense, I don't necessarily blame them. Like they've got huge workloads. um, And I think like, even with respect to the other experts on here, like um, Dr. Izzy, like the amount of work that she does and how she's really good at translating a lot of that information there is a huge credit to her because of the amount of work it takes. Trust me, there's a whole lot of academics that are a lot worse, like so much worse at actually trying to get that information out. So, yeah, there's like a real big, beautiful gap there where I wouldn't actually blame or say the professionals aren't getting the knowledge. It's just not getting to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we are trying to fill that gap. And, you know, we do have some incredible experts like Dr. Izzy, Grace Coombe, Sarah Whitteson and Lily Burden on the team. And now mm. you joining the team. And I just want to say from every female that exists in the world, thank you because the research is so, so important. And without, you know, the work that you do and other researchers out there, we wouldn't be learning about the female body. We wouldn't be feeling empowered in our own bodies by through, through this education. So thank you for dedicating your life to this work. We're very grateful for that. And also very grateful that you are joining our, our team at FEMI. What made you want to come on board and join the FEMI family? I think it was, for me, alignment of values. For me, the area that I, my research has kind of grown into, naturally evolving from that iron status and then being a female athlete and having it naturally evolve into the space where I was like, we actually don't know so much. I was just like natural kind of just like awareness. And I think this natural want of my own in a little way, my potentially very selfish want where we've just discussed where it's like there's this beautiful capacity and resource that I can generate a lot of this research and I know how that formal academic process goes but how to then translate that back to my community to actually ensure that the information I am generating is actually getting to the people that I want to help and assist versus just being like done my job publish my academic article KPI ticked well done me pat on the back And just kind of seeing the work that you guys were doing and the general vision um, that you guys had for what Femi was really kind of drew me to it. And I was like, this is actually a really great space. Like the culture that's created in and around there, the openness and discussing this, 
is actually one which we need to grow and develop. And if there is a way in which I can assist these girls in helping to achieve their mission, because it aligns very much with my own values, I was like, pretty good match to me. So yeah, that's pretty much how I was like, I can see this working. (laughs) Well, we love it. And we're so lucky to have you on board. And yeah, whatever you find out, we will put it out to the masses and, I think it's like testament to the community behind us. I think like 95% of those that follow us on Instagram are are women and are really interested in the space. So we've got a community that's really keen to learn and to learn off amazing minds like you and all the research that you do. So yeah, we are super lucky to have you on board and so excited to get all this information out there and help women uh, get to know their bodies more and feel empowered within their bodies more. Um, But we're going to finish up now with our quick fire questions. So we've got a couple of questions for you just to finish off. Mm-hmm. The first one is what would you tell your younger self? So if you, if you look back to your 15 year old self, what would you say to her? Oh, chill out. <laughs> Same. Oh, she was a bit intense. Um, but yeah, just chill out. Like, there's actually moments where you can just catch your breath and enjoy like there's no need to put yourself underneath all of that pressure funny <laughs> oh yeah she could definitely have a chill pill yeah it's a good reminder for all of us whether you're 15 or you know 25 35 45 I think we all need um and then your last five question is what is your purpose on mother earth oh I love that. That is a that's a beautiful question. It's to give back all I can in whatever way that looks like. And right now what that looks like to me is the fact that I am able to give back to the students that I teach, those that I supervise and to my wider community based on my job and my position. So yeah, it might change, but at the core of it, it's always going to be to try and give back. Yeah, I love that. Well, you're definitely doing that, and we're very, very lucky to have you in the world. <laughs> so thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for your time today. We will be tagging Claire's Instagram into our show notes. You can go ahead and give her a follow. If you have any questions or thoughts around this episode, you can get at us on Instagram at demi.co or head to our website, demi.co, but we'll be back in your ears next week. Thank you. Thanks so much, girls.